Welcome to Let's Get Ethical, the podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto. Today's guest is Professor Sunit Das, who is both a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist at the medical school at the University of Toronto. Today's topic will be medical ethics and the neurosurgeon. Please note that this podcast will come in two parts. Part two will focus on a recent article published in the New York Times entitled Moral Distress in Neurosurgery by Joseph D. Stern, a neurosurgeon in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome to Let's Get Ethical. Today we're talking to uh, Professor Sunit Das, uh, who is a neurosurgeon and neuroscientist um, at the medical school at the University of Toronto. Welcome to Let's Get Ethical. Thanks, Marcus. Today we're uh, talking to you about medical ethics and surgical ethics, and in particular the moral distress uh, faced by neurosurgeons uh, like yourself. So I thought we'd start uh, by having you tell us how you got into neurosurgery and um, you know, how, how you got to be who you are now. That's, a, that's an easy place to start. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I've been a neurosurgeon now in practice for nine years. Uh, it's a long path to get to neurosurgery uh, and not one that I'll say I thought of as the path that I'd be on when I first started. Um, I grew up in a medical family. Uh, my father's a pediatrician, and I'd always been exposed to medicine uh, and went to university with the idea that medicine might be something I'd pursue. Um, I ended up spending more time studying the Iliad and the Odyssey than I did uh, most of the sciences and uh, ended up doing a degree in English literature. Um, and from there, uh, went to pursue graduate studies in philosophy. Um, and while I was doing that, really became interested in um, thinking about questions of identity um, in a broader sense of how we construct notions of ourself. And, and from being a philosophical question, that for me became a question that was relevant to neuroscience as well. And um, I found philosophy, strangely, to be, for me, the medium that led me to medicine. Um, and That is pretty unusual. It's, it's I'll say it's, um, it's not the typical path. Um, I don't think it's mine alone. Mm. Um, but, uh, so I came to medical school really um, very much focused on the sort of questions you could imagine in medicine being interesting to someone who had a background in literature and philosophy and um, really came to medical school thinking I would be a psychiatrist. Uh, and in my first couple of years of medical school, which we consider preclinical years, they're the years before you go to the hospital and spend most of your time kind of learning the science of medicine, uh, my love was neuroscience. Hmm. Uh, and. I went into my time as a clinical student thinking that I would go into psychiatry and, and knowing that I had this uh, kind of deep love for neuroscience um, and uh, somehow f 
found myself uh, attracted to neurosurgery. Um, and I'm still trying to get over the disease of being attracted to neurosurgery. <laughs> in, what, in what sense is it a disease? It's um, <laughs> part of, of medical school for me was realizing that there is some truth to the um, ideas that we have of what surgeons are like and what surgery is about. Um, uh, I think all of us have a very stereotypical idea of the surgeon, um, and that stereotype was much of the reason why I wasn't interested in the idea of becoming a surgeon coming into medical school. But t tell us more about the, the stereotype of the, of the surgeon. Do I really need to? <laughs> I, I think all of us think of kind of the uh, hyper-obsessive, um, hypercritical, um, hyper-egotistical, and hyper-confident mm. individual who could do something as uh, ambitious and foolish as anything that's, that happens in the world of surgery. Um, you have to have a particular type of person to do something as audacious as cut open another individual. Um, and I think all of us have this idea of that um, for just to, to delve into the stereotype completely, the, the hyper-masculine, mm -hmm. um, hyper-obnoxious person who could fit the bill for that. Um, and I certainly found those people in surgery, uh, but excitingly what I also found were people who were remarkably thoughtful and um, remarkably engrossed in what they did, not because it proved anything to themselves, but because of what being a surgeon allowed them to do. Um, and I, I found that role um, that one takes in relationship to one's patients as a surgeon really to be something that was was special um, and almost almost religious in its in its depth um, if there's a priesthood in medicine it's being a surgeon um, and if there's a high priesthood in medicine it's being a neurosurgeon I'd like, to, I'd like to hear more about that. This is, it's, it's uh, I mean, I have to admit that I, I didn't have a very well-developed um, preconceived notion of what a, what a surgeon is, but I mean, I've, I've seen them on TV. So seems, <laughs> You've got the whole story. It seems they, 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 they're often portrayed. It's amazing in, how good-looking they are, isn't it? <laughs> well, um. I guess they're exceptions. Um, uh, but, so it, it does, it does, um, Raised the question whether the neurosurgeon is is different from from other surgeons, both kind of the, the most surgical of the you know, of, of the surgeons and also the the least surgical in, in the sense that um, you get to mess around with uh, you know the, the most the tender and significant yeah, um, pieces of the, of of the human, um, which presumably requires yet more confidence than just operating other parts of the body at, at the same time um, 
perhaps as you, you as a neuroscientist and as a, as a philosopher are, are attracted to, to this particular type of surgery because you are particularly reflective. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the, kind of this, this, this conflict within the, the very notion of, of being a, a neurosurgeon. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, I think it's great that you catch on that conflict. Um, and maybe that's um, what I'm trying to get at with the word audacious, right? That's um, there's something kind of inherently foolish in the idea that you would take um, the sort of role that you kind of take as just what's every day in neurosurgery. I'll say in surgery in general. Um, I'll step back for just a second. Um, one of the things that makes medicine special, um, there, there are the elements of it that are intellectual that are remarkably fascinating. There are the elements of it that are technical, that are uh, that you can take a pleasure in simply the, the challenge of. Um, but I would say that probably most of us find the compact that we make with our patients uh, really something special and something that's a real source of meaning. Um, and when I use the word priesthood, I think that's what I'm trying to get at, this idea that the relationship of medicine involves making a compact with an individual who's typically with you because of a time of being in a time of need. And uh, particularly in neurosurgery, it involves giving a trust that you will do uh, everything in your power to guide someone through what they're dealing with. Um, and, and there's, there are, I, I think about what it means to live a life that generates a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning um, and I'll say I feel very fortunate uh, to come away with both those senses daily from what I do. Um, that's, um, that's both beautiful and kind of scary also in, in, in that um, you, you know, it's, a, it's a big ask uh, of, of your profession to, sure. to, to, um, to you know, do this for you. For uh, sure. And, and to some degree, it's always yeah. something that you're going to fail at. Yeah. Right? Just yeah. by the nature of it. No one can quite meet the demands of what that is. But it's, there's something really special in always trying. Um, and to some degree, that's, that's one of the most human things you could possibly attempt to do, knowing that you're going to fail and just trying over and again, despite that. So when you mentioned this uh, idea of the, the priesthood, um, um, and also at the same time you said you have a compact, so to me that raises the question of, of you know, what, what this, how, how do you view this, this compact that you have with your patient? Because you know, there's one way of thinking about the priesthood and, and also of the medical profession. Maybe it's an antiquated way, I, I don't really know, but um, where it's a very hierarchical relationship 
um, you know, where the the doctor right. or, or certainly the priest, you know, is is in, is in charge and is in a position to dispense, you know, whatever they right. dispense uh, health and um, grace. Yeah. Um, and 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 then, then there's the patient or the parishioner who was uh, just receiving and is you know is begging for something and, right. and then receiving it. Right. Um, but I, I would I would have a hard time thinking about this as as some kind of compact. It's it's um, in so far as a compact may, may mean that there's some, some sort of equality. Yeah, yeah. Th that that's, that's so right. So I, I I practice medicine in post Reformation uh, medicine. Oh, okay. Oh, I I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Lutheran doctor. <laughs> it's, um, uh, That's very no, specific. It, yeah. Um, it's, um, no, it's true. I think mm. the medicine that I would have practiced 30 years ago is very different than what I practice now. And I, and I think, um, interestingly, I could easily see myself suited to what those relationships meant decades ago. Um, but very much suited to what we create of those relationships now, uh, meaning that the patriarchal element of medicine that was almost expected decades ago before the patients' rights movements kind of caused the evolution in that. Um, it's, it's frighteningly, it's easy for me as a physician to see how there would have been, how one could have found joy in that how one could have found pleasure in that again if you're if you're composed with the idea that you have knowledge and skills that allow you to make good decisions for someone you can see where it would be easy to take some pleasure from having a hierarchical relationship in that process um, it, it's um, I'll say that I, I don't know that any of the pleasure of it is lost by medicine no longer being hierarchical in that way. I I think of myself as a guide for my patients, not as necessarily uh, how should I say it? When Virgil takes Dante to the Inferno, it's still up to Dante to find his way. Virgil may help him, but it's still his path and his course. Um, I think probably most of us see ourselves as guides for our patients, not not the ones who are looking from above and judging heaven and hell. Um, less metaphorically, since you're laughing at me, um, I think most of us see the relationship we have as our patients as being experts who have data and experience that can help our patients understand the situation that they're in and make cogent decisions about where to go next. Yeah, but it seems you, you kind of set out two different visions of, of what the relationship might be and what your job might be, which I think is, um, which I think is interesting because as as far as I can tell, you don't see yourself as having to choose between one or the other. Um, but that these, you know, another way of putting this is that like there's a spiritual component to your job, 
but then there's also uh, you know uh, an enlightened or or scientific um, component, and and that these two two things are, are are maybe in tension, but that they're not mutually inconsistent. No, I don't think so. And I think yeah. I think the fact of them both being present at all times is part of what makes it so pleasurable. Um, it's um, you know I have a second role as a scientist. That role is very different than the one I have as a physician. Um, the things that I do uh, in my basic laboratory um, are very much ruled by uh, constructs of what it means to come to truth as a scientist um, in a very prescribed way. And there's a tremendous pleasure in doing that work. Um, it does sound like you're having a lot of fun, I have to say. <laughs> um, the, the rules are different in medicine. Mm. Um, and I'd say maybe the reason for that is because as a medical scientist, which all of us are as physicians, everything we do requires some translation from that world of science into a real lived world. Um, and um, judging or um, guiding real-world experience based only on the rules of science is called reductionism. Right? There's much more to human lived experience than you capture with science alone. And so part of the joy of medicine is the fact that all of those are, fall into the realm of what you do as a doctor. Yeah, so um, I think this relation between the scientist and the the surgeon um, is is, um, is is fascinating to me um, because it doesn't just raise the question of how the two relate to each other, but but also uh, to what extent they are limited to specific spheres. Mm -hmm. So, for for example, you could have said that you're a scientist when you're in the lab. Um, but you are, say, a healer um, when you're a doctor. But but I I, I I think what you're saying is that in in both of these roles, I mean, perhaps I don't, that's actually interesting. Do you, when you're when you're a scientist, are you are you just the scientist? Um, but when you are you know the healer, you're both kind of there's a spiritual side to what you do, and then there's a kind of you know scientific side right. to what you do. Or do you think that there's also you know, a spiritual element to, to the science, um, the science you do. Can, um, can you separate those, separate these things out? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I think all those things are captured into an identity that I've decided to take on. I mean, even as a scientist, my, my science is very much directed towards asking questions that are relevant for people I take care of. Um, all of my scientific work is driven in cancer biology and really directed towards trying to answer shortcomings in what I do as a clinician. Um, so the, the two are, those worlds for me, they, they may be physically separate from each other, but they're always in communication. Um, and that's part of the pleasure of, of kind of having the whole at the moment for me. Um, it's it is it's interesting though how all of those 
uh, all of those worlds kind of merge and, and at times separate in this identity. When the drapes go on to do a procedure, I'm a technician, right? My job is to go from point A to B to C to whatever the final letter needs to be in the most efficient and safe way possible. Um, it's, it's almost in a way necessary to become ignorant to the particularity of that moment. In other words, it can't be the patient who I hugged before we walked back to the operating room um, becomes a case uh, for that however many hours that my job has to be to get this case done appropriately. And then it ends and the case is over and my patient is once again something more than just the case. Um, but there is there is some need to compartmentalize. If if you, at least for me, the 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 technical work of surgery in that sphere of being in the operating room requires kind of a concentric vision to just that element of the work. Because otherwise you wouldn't be sufficiently focused on, on the complexity of the... Because I, I imagine this is a fairly complex task that, yeah. you're, that you're engaged in that requires your utmost skill and concentration. And um, so, so, so focusing on the case before you and thinking of the case as a person may actually make it impossible or more difficult for you to, to, to do the technical things you need to do to actually help the person, least, although you are interacting with the person as a, as a case in that particular moment. At that moment. moment, yeah. We'd have to ask Heidegger what he would think of this. But, yeah, um, he's, he's on next week. <laughs> um, at least for me, at, the, at least for me, at least at this moment, in, in my place of maturing as a surgeon and maturing as a doctor, um, it's. I find it necessary to have that dissociation of the two. So, um, would it be your ideal to um, to overcome this, you know, this separation, um, or because because one of the things that that um, that I, I, I take to be a, a, a challenge for neurosurgeons in particular is that you are interacting with patients in these ex extreme situations, um, but then you also have to perform this very complex uh, surgical procedure. So um, the question arises, like, what should you train for? How do you train people to do uh, to be both, to be yeah, both a physician and a surgeon? That, that's yeah. right. And, and so it seems to me that perhaps the, the general answer has been you will focus on the procedure. You, you're going to train yeah. the, the technician because that's, I don't know, that is what it means to be a, a neurosurgeon and then uh, thinking about the other aspects of the job, um, you're going to... You'll figure it out. Or hopefully you're yeah. a decent human being or hopefully right yeah. there are these elements that are already there and intact. You know, I think, um, 
I think the question you ask is a general one for medicine. Um, the technical elements of what we do are in a way easier, right? They're measurable. They're, um, they're things that you can track. You can see progress. Um, when you think about what it means to teach with the idea of bringing someone from start to some finish point, um, those are elements that are discrete in a way and uh, that you can see as being objectives that can be met. It's a lot harder to think about the other question of how do you teach someone to be a good physician? How do you teach someone to doctor others? Um, and I think part of the difficulty is it's really hard to define what does it mean to be a good doctor? Uh, what are the elements that make someone a good caretaker? They're not the easiest things to necessarily make sense of. Um, I think all of us can agree pretty easily that there's not much value in a good doctor who is a technical disaster. Right? In other words, one of the fundamental demands of our profession is that you be professionally competent. Um, it's it's harder to know what to do with a good technician who's not a good doctor. Is the is the challenge to um, how to train good clinicians, or or is it also that there's no agreement on what it even means to be a, a good clinician? Where there might be a consensus of what it means to be a good technician, right? But but not so much what it means to be a good clinician. Yeah, I, I wonder that. I mean, again, the, the technical elements are, mm. are measurable, are much easier to understand as discrete objectives. My, my great worry, and I think a lot of people have this worry, um, we, the people who come to us trying to get into medical school, which is not an easy thing to do, uh, are remarkable people, and they're amazing human beings, and most of them are very accomplished, and if you looked at them as people, you'd think to yourself, these are people we allow to take care of others. Um, and then we get to the other side, and we know if you ask patients that many of us as doctors fail to meet what they would hope to have in their physicians. Um, and as someone in the process, someone in the role of training others who are going to be future physicians, um, I, I worry: Have we taken good people and forced them to lose their way? Uh, have we beaten them uh, into losing their humanity? Um, Marcus, I'll say the other thing. You think about how much you grew as an individual, as a person, from the age of 22 to 30. Maybe not you, but most people. Most people, Marcus. How much, how, how much you grow as a person from in, in that time. Um, and, and this is when we ask people who are going into medicine to pretty much give up everything else in life just to focus on 
the work of becoming a doctor, and particularly the work of becoming a surgeon. And I say that simply because the, the clinical demands of being a surgical resident are, are almost inhumane. Mm. Um, and, and maybe we're getting what you should expect to get on the other side if you take someone who's 22 and bereft them of much of what all of us experience in order to grow as people. The other possibility is maybe we're not doing so badly. And maybe, you know, again, like I told you, I went into neurosurgery in part because I met people in neurosurgery and mentors in neurosurgery who I looked at and thought, this is someone worth emulating. Um, and I look around at my colleagues and I find myself with the sense that most of them are remarkable doctors and very capable and very available to their patients. So maybe we're not doing as badly as I think. Well, that's, you know, that's good news, I guess. <laughs> I, um, if I you set say... the bar low, <laughs> it'll all work yeah, out. Yeah, maybe we... <laughs> um, as far as I know, you're, you're doing well. <laughs> Um, I mean, I just have to say that some of the things you say about um, medical education reminds me of things people say about legal education also, and, and I, uh, I wonder about similar things. Mm -hmm. Maybe when I compare students coming into law school, um, yeah, where, where they, they're in many cases excited about justice and um, and then, yeah, then a lot of a lot of professional legal education is is yeah, training them not to think in these terms yeah. and and to develop the legal clinical skills to you know to operate on on any case they they might uh, face, uh, including ones involving people who you know are, are not particularly nice or good or. Um, you you beat them into becoming corporate lawyers, is that? Uh, no, no, just uh, well, no, into it, 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 becoming technicians. Yeah. It's uh, it's not as um, as extreme and and yeah. I, I'm sure as the um, medical training is. But I, I I wonder if there's an element of you know, professional education that that thinks of itself as re requiring that sort of right. um, treatment of of people who want to join. Join the profession. For, uh, I'm not sure that's necessary, but it seems to be kind of common. I, you know, I worry. Um, in the end, there's an artisanal element to what yeah. we do, right? You, like you said, you have to know how to practice law. Um, the same thing in medicine. You, you, you have to know how to practice medicine. Yeah. And I worry that some people, in fact, many of us, um, that the work of it. Somehow causes us to lose um, the magic that brought us there. Uh, like you said, most people coming into law school are excited about the idea of what the principles of justice, what the principles of equity mean. Um, most people who go into medical school find the idea of being of service to others as a physician to be uh, a high goal and end. Um, and and I worry sometimes that somehow getting 
caught up in the morass of actually doing the work, many of us lose sight of the magic of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Get Ethical, the podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of the iLab at the University of Toronto. This was part one of our two-part podcast on medical ethics and the neurosurgeon with Professor Sunit Das of the Medical School at the University of Toronto. Be sure to listen to part two as well. To learn more about the center's activities, visit our website at ethics.utoronto.ca.